This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this episode, we're going to talk about video game industries, a subject we haven't really broached on the podcast before. And to help us, we're joined by Amanda Cody, who is the Marsh Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Michigan, and soon-to-be Assistant Professor at the University of Oregon. Amanda's focus is on how perceptions of gaming have changed as it became more casualized. But she joins us to talk about business trends in the industry. Amanda Cody, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thank you. We're continuing our trend of having guests that have either my name or Alex's name, just to make things a little bit more confusing. <laughs> so, ah, so other Amanda. So gaming is a, is a really multifaceted industry. Can you sort of roughly lay out the sectors that have defined the industry historically, assuming that you know, some of our, our listeners may know a lot about the industry, but probably a lot uh, don't know how it's generally organized? Yes, although I will say that the way the industry has been defined historically is not necessarily the most useful anymore. Historically, it's been defined by hardware. So very early video games were an accidental byproduct of research labs. They showed up in military and nuclear research labs. They showed up at places like MIT. But computers at the time were too expensive for people to have a lot of access to these. So although computer games were first, the first commercially successful video game was Atari. Um, Atari's Pong, which was an arcade game. So that comes out in 1971. The 1970s through the 1990s, arcade games are a really big thing. Very popular, very prominent, huge commercial dominance in the 1970s. Obviously, at this point, they're kind of tangential to the industry. They started to decline in the 1980s, minimized in 1990s, and are now not that important. What we saw replacing them were home video game consoles, standalone systems that you plug into your living room TV, also came out in the early 1970s, very popular through the 1970s, 1980s. The industry had a crash in 1983, so kind of the console mm-hmm. market dried up 1983 to 1985. Wasn't E.T. the famous failure of Atari? Yes, Atari? Atari's E.T. Atari's E.T. gets a bad rap. <laughs> it was a lot of different factors that caused this crash. Overall economic depression, a glut of poorly produced games, and companies assuming that uh, consumers would just buy anything, which was not the case. So consumers were really just not holding things up to a standard. The entire American industry collapsed. A lot of it went out of business. This opened up the market, so it became more global. Nintendo actually brought the console mm-hmm. market back in 1985 by having a high standard of quality for their games, making sure that their systems had a lot of good games available, lots of different marketing tactics there that brought it back. So consoles have been pretty dominant from 1985 to now. They're usually what people think of first when they think of video games. And then PC games have also been very big. These took advantage of that console crash in 1983. Computers were getting less expensive at the time. It's always been a smaller industry than consoles because of things like piracy concerns. It's a lot easier to steal games from computers because how to program a computer is open and how to program a console is proprietary. But they've been more innovative, they have been big in educational games, things like that. Those are kind of the historical three sectors of gaming. They don't really apply as much anymore now because we've seen a big diversification in styles of games and platforms. So added to our platforms, we now have social games, things played through social media like Facebook. We have mobile games played on cell phones. And then we have just general casual games, which are available across a lot of platforms but are a different play style than 
the traditional console game where you sit down and put 60 to 100 hours in it. So those have really started to diversify the industry and people have started to define sectors of gaming in different ways to account for that. You've laid out the sectors very nicely for us, but let's get into who the key players in the industry are. And I think related to that, you know, are there shared definitions of these industries or are they also still somewhat uh, contested? So there are a lot of contested divisions. There are people who talk about independent companies versus non-independent companies, triple A or core companies, which refers to the biggest players in the industry, the ones that make the most involved and most expensive games, comparing those to smaller producers. I think the person who's laid it out most effectively has been Afra Kerr in her book Global Games, which came out last year. She actually defines the industry based on a combination of hardware, profit model, development process, and play style. So for instance, what we would consider core games or AAA games, those big budget ones, she actually divides into three sectors. One is core console or handheld games, which are on a proprietary technology. The hardware is sold at a loss, but then people make money by selling games. And she contrasts that with, say, core online games like World of Warcraft, other massively multiplayer online games like that, or a a new genre there is MOBAs, multiplayer online battle arenas. They're basically just games where you drop in, fight a bunch of people, but ones like League of Legends have gotten very popular. Mm -hmm. And that, she argues, should be separate from core console games because programming for a computer is open hardware. It's not Mm -hmm. proprietary. And also because those games have so much more on the back end. They have so much more involved in maintenance Mm -hmm. than just a console game where ostensibly you release it and you're done with it. They have actual servers. Exactly. And their players expect updates. Their players expect new characters to be released. So it's Mm -hmm. a different business model. So she splits core games up into multiple different segments. How is that funded? Is it subscription? Subscription based, which is another reason why she keeps it separate. Because it's not just about the sale price of the game. It's that you're paying $15 a month to keep playing World of Warcraft. So I find her way of dividing it out really much more logical to the modern industry. And she gives us five five sectors overall. So core console and handheld games, core PC games, online games, which have the continuous investment, online applications, which involves browser-based games like the original Plants vs. Zombies, but also social games on Facebook, and then mobile as the last segment. So who are the key players in the sectors then? So it depends on which sector you're talking about. If we're talking about console games, it's been dominated since the early 2000s by Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo. Um, And Microsoft releasing the Xbox in the early 2000s was actually a change. It was the first American-based console to be really successful since that crash. In the PC market, it depends. Different producers and different publishers of games have hit-or-miss seasons depending on what's coming out. So individual game development companies have a much bigger stance in the PC market than, say, in the console, Mm -hmm. where it's really dominated by hardware companies. We've seen a lot of shifts recently with conglomerates getting a lot of interests in different areas. So the biggest company in gaming right now is actually a company called Tencent, which is based in China, and they have stances in massively multiplayer online gaming. They have a number of mobile games that they've released. They've really just got kind of a finger in every pie, and it's made them far and away the biggest company in gaming. That's been a big Mm -hmm. shift. 
So when we do this kind of rundown in most industries, we talk about sort of contemporary changes, and they're almost always linked to digitization. But to a degree, you know, digital really has been a key part of video games for a long time. So is that what explains many of the changes that you've been talking about, or, or what else explains those changes? Digitization and digital distribution has had a significant impact on video gaming. At the same time, this conglomeration has been going on where people have been buying up companies so that they can diversify across sectors of gaming, we've also seen a simultaneous rise of small independent production houses, privately owned, not publicly traded, smaller development teams, and that's been directly related to growing digital distribution opportunities. So console games, console systems started to be connected to the internet in the early 2000s, but prior to that, games for consoles were kind of too big to download over the types of internet connections we had. So you bought it on a disc mm-hmm. and you played it on your system and it was a very physical thing, mm-hmm. despite the fact that games are inherently digital. More consoles connecting to the internet, better internet capabilities have really upped the number of platforms where you can download games. And so that's opened up the ability for independent distributors um, and independent companies to sell at a more flexible price point Mm -hmm. to not have to charge $60 to get their money back because they're not paying Best Buy to carry their game for them. So that digital distribution has been big and crowdfunding Mm -hmm. and digital fundraising platforms have also been very helpful for independent producers. In terms of the industry overall, a lot of the changes are actually technology-related rather than necessarily digital-related, like the spread of mobile games has made that a huge industry. It's actually the biggest sector of the industry now. It's knocked console gaming into second place. Um, Simply the ubiquity of mobile games allow them to target a much broader audience, and the fact that you can fill all of your dead space and dead time during the day with this really Mm -hmm. easy-to-pick-up-and-play device has made a really big difference there. And so is that purely a function of mobile coming from nowhere to this peak number, or has it also been a story of decline in consoles? Ah, the, the, are consoles dying question. (laughs) No, 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 Um, just declining. (laughs) Just like broadcast TV, it's still there. So the significance of consoles is in some ways declining, yes. Um, A lot of people have predicted the death of AAA games, the death of consoles. Every industry seems to have that story. Exactly. (laughs) And yet Um, nothing's dead. It's a very overblown claim, that's true. Now, that being said, consoles have been dominant for so long that second place might feel like death. Um, (laughs) And so it's true that there are some bases for these emotions. But yes, mobile gaming has blown up in part due to just its accessibility, but in part due to it's been releasing the types of games that lots of people want, whereas console games still tend to target who they see as the traditional gamer, the young white male with enough money to spend on a $300 console and a $60 game, and then the time and energy to actually play their way through that. And that's always been a pretty limited market. Mm-hmm. It's never taken into account everybody who might want to play a game. So AAA um, console games, they're all struggling with how to reach new people and what that should look like and should they change anything. So their limitations are starting to show a lot more than previously. They're also struggling with ballooning budgets. As technology gets better and better and allows you more graphics capabilities, if you're not taking advantage of those, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? So how do you manage that? Do you change the price point? Do you change 
by giving people downloadable content and having them pay you more times, that pricing is a big struggle mm-hmm. because they, they do need to recoup their costs when they have these much bigger budgets. Your last comment led me to a thought around Nintendo. They're a company that took a long time to embrace mobile, but now with Super Mario Run, you have this old player embracing the new platform. Yeah, Nintendo's always been an interesting case. Nintendo has frequently targeted younger audiences than other systems. They frequently haven't cared about having top-of-the-line technology. They've cared more about affordability. They always kind of do their own thing a little bit. But I can understand their reluctance to get into mobile because... Nintendo's had very successful handheld video game systems. So technology made just for the purpose of gaming, and I can see where they wouldn't want to encourage their handheld gamers to turn to mobile as an option. They'd want to keep them on the DS or, prior to that, the Game Boy, which was massively successful. But I think they're realizing that people still play handheld games and mobile games simultaneously, so now they're realizing that they're missing out on that. And, of course, they have such popular intellectual property... That putting Mario on a new system is is always going to be successful, which I think is another reason why we won't see console games completely go away, because sometimes you just need a new Zelda game. (laughs) Uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, one could argue, drove the purchase of some Switches, and that's been really big, so keeping that property alive still matters. So you've hinted around this a bit, but can you tell us anything more about how all of this technological and business change has affected game playing, uh, who's playing, and and really just the nature of the games themselves. Yeah, so this is actually my area. This might get a little gender-focused because (laughs) that's my focus in the research. Um, I, I made a reference to it earlier that traditionally the video game industry has targeted a specific type of player. After that crash in 1983, they kind of withdrew. Boys had been more visible players. Boys were therefore a safer bet. So a lot of video game history has focused specifically on men and boys playing games and not on girls and women. That seems to be where, like, Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty... Exactly. Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, Halo, um, and it actually even goes all the way back to Atari games. A lot of them were based on war or uh, exploring the Wild West. They were very culturally male fantasies. Mike Newman writes about that in his book Atari Age, which is also a really great one. But this is, of course, ignoring... 50% of your potential market. And when mobile games started coming out and started becoming very popular, a lot of their audience, a lot of their visible audience has been women. And so video game companies have started to realize, oh, we have these more visible players. And of course, women always played games, but generally just weren't noticed doing it. So now people have realized maybe diversifying our market is a good plan. So we've seen some undermining of cultural expectations about what a gamer is or what a gamer looks like or who can be a gamer. And so that's broadened out our advertising, broadened out our audience outreach, provoked some backlash from people who are not happy about it. Um, But it's changed the face of what a gamer looks like. And then the types of games that we see are also a little bit different. Increasingly, they're not these... 60-hour narrative-driven storylines where you really have to get into it, where you have a white male protagonist and that's who you're guiding through the storyline. We've seen some diversification in who the protagonists are. We've also seen a lot of games that are easier to pick up and play or to play in short bursts where you can get relaxation and enjoyment out of them without having to marathon your gaming session. So that's been an increasing part of the market and actually mobile gaming has now 
surpassed console gaming in the industry. It's the biggest part by, I believe the profits are almost double what the console industry is getting right now. So it's been successful broadening out to target more audiences. What are the biggest challenges facing video games today? And you can separate this into sectors if that's easier. Price is a big one, and price is a big one across sectors. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier the kind of high budgets of AAA games. You know, they're reaching... 30 to $60 million for development on average, I believe. Um, So you have to sell a lot at a high price point to get that back. So a lot of AAA games uh, have started experimenting with downloadable content where you pay $60 to buy a game, but then maybe they'll release in addition to the storyline, and it's another $20 for that. And a lot of gamers aren't happy about this. A lot of them want to be able to buy a game once and know that they'll get it. Um, Some kind of console games have started adding microtransactions where you can pay small amounts of money to speed up progress on something or get a cool new suit of armor. That's also another thing that uh, gamers aren't sure about. And that also comes a lot out of mobile. Mobile's still having that same issue. So mobile really promoted this idea of freemium gaming where it was free to download the game, but then you could pay those small amounts of money if you wanted to speed things up. So now mobile games that are more expensive to produce are having trouble if they're asking people to pay for them because people expect mobile games to be free. And then a mobile game is like, well, we put a lot of time and effort into this. Our production budget was a lot higher. We'd like to charge you $5. People are like, $5 for a mobile game? What is this? (laughs) Um, And so they're really kind of rejecting mobile's attempt to be more serious and have bigger budgets Mm -hmm. and produce games that they need you to pay for. So both of of those big segments are struggling with pricing it in a lot of ways. Another thing that the industry is struggling with is labor issues. There have been a number of consistent reports over more than a decade at this point that say the video game industry encourages overwork, has mandatory crunch periods where people are working 80 to 100 hours a week, And crunch time is supposed to be a temporary measure to speed you up when you're about to miss a deadline or when you've fallen behind, but voices from within the industry say that crunch time has just become standard. You're expected to work the 80 to 100 hours a week, even if you've been hitting all of your deadlines. And a number of companies have been sued for this, um, particularly because they don't always pay for all of that overtime. So a couple of them have faced class action lawsuits. The video game industry has a very high rate of turnover because this is an unsustainable amount of work. People don't see their families. People have physical and mental health issues. So the average person, I believe, leaves the industry within 10 years of entering it. So that kind of talent turnover, because of course, if you're a programmer, you can go into software where it's more regulated, where you don't have those overtime hours. And so it's really hard to get experienced people to move into management. You end up making the same mistakes over and over again. There have been a number of assertions that some corporations have unhealthy work environments in terms of racism and sexism. There was a very big controversy about this recently with independent production company Quantic Dream. Their founder has been accused of being racist and sexist and homophobic and just creating a very toxic work environment. There is a tension to that. The International Game Developers Association, which is kind of a trade organization for developers, does a survey pretty regularly. In their recent one, they asked who would consider unionizing. A lot of people are concerned about getting fired if they support unionization. So it's a very fraught issue within the industry right now. 
And interesting because so many other media industries do rely on uh, and are heavily regulated by guilds or unions precisely for these issues uh, related to staying on on schedule and just really making sure that basic living conditions can be sustained. Yeah, and it complicates video games' interaction with other industries. For instance, a lot of screen actors also do voice acting, and so there have been some complications with screen actors, guild union members refusing to do voice acting for video games because of the lack of protection for their work there. Uh, One of my students was just telling me about this earlier today. I actually hadn't heard that much about it beforehand. But apparently, because it is an entertainment industry that overlaps with other Mm -hmm. entertainment industries, it's starting to be a problem with getting work. One thing I want to get back to. You talked about pay-to-play sort of things. There's been a big controversy involving Star Wars Battlefront 2 recently where they had a quote-unquote loot box strategy, where they had the $60 entrance fee. But then there were other elements to the game where you had to play for hours or you had to pay a lot of money. What made this implementation so controversial? Well, a lot of it goes back to industry norms and industry expectations. For a very, very long time, console and PC games, particularly those we'd consider AAA, were priced at a flat $50. The first time somebody went over $50, it was big news. Industry members were afraid that consumers would revolt, that they'd refuse to buy the game, but the company that produced it said, look, we spent a lot on this game. It's worth, I believe it was $55, a $5 (laughs) difference or something like that. We're going to charge it and we'll see what happens. But the standard price point now is $60. It's gone up those 10 Unfortunately, budgets have continued to increase even after $60 became the norm. Gamers don't necessarily see those. A lot of companies don't release their budgets. It's hard to get good inside industrial information about video gaming. A lot of grosses don't get released, too. Yes, exactly. So how much you sell, how much it costs, what your profit margins are, no one hears any of that. So all a player sees is, I already paid $60 for this game, and now you want me to pay all of this extra money, too? It's a very different industry logic than in mobile, where mobile has set the industry norm as free to download, pay if you want to speed things up. And once people get in the logic of that as the norm... It's hard to change away from it. Another thing people have been pushing back against lately is a lot of these games have started to charge money for a chance to get something. So you could pay real money and then not actually get the thing you're hoping for, um, which I believe there might be some interesting gambling implications there. I'm sure somebody else is looking into it. But the idea that you're investing real money for a chance to get something also has a lot of people very upset because if they're paying more than what they already paid, they generally want to know exactly what they're going to get out of it. Is it fair to say that gaming, whether it's the the audience or how the industry operates, is more global than other industries? I think in a lot of ways it is fair to say that. As I mentioned earlier, after kind of the U.S. video game console industry crashed in the early 1980s, the company that brought it back was Nintendo. Nintendo actually had to fight against the idea that gaming was dead, that it had been a flash in the pan and it was never going to succeed again. They took a lot of risks to do this. For instance, they promised retailers that any unsold Nintendo systems, Nintendo would buy back at full price. So the retailers were not Mm -hmm. losing anything but store space if they decided to carry it. That was how afraid people were of selling games at the time. 
so Nintendo brought the industry back, and Nintendo and then later Sony have continued to be really big players in the industry since then. So while a lot of industries are kind of dominated by Hollywood, very dominated by the U.S. market, the video game industry has, for most of its history, been at least split between the U.S. and Japan. As the main hardware producers, software producers are a little bit more widespread. For instance, Ubisoft is one of the biggest game publishing companies, and it's located in France, but with offices all over the place. And consumption occurs on a global scale. This morning, I was just pulling up the numbers for different areas of the world. Asia, specifically China, Japan, and South Korea are some of the biggest consumers of video games at a rate of $51.2 billion last year, followed by uh, North America at 27. The numbers I was looking at from NewZoo combined Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, which I thought was a little (laughs) odd, but that was another 26.6, and then Latin America's 4.4, so significant markets around the world, although we see a little bit of that dominance in North America and in Asia. And it's becoming increasingly global. I mentioned Tencent, Mm -hmm. the Chinese video game company, was not even in the top 10 in 2010, Mm -hmm. was number one by 2013 by significant margin, and it's stayed there since then. So we see new companies arising, diversifying a little bit. In terms of production, software still tends to be a little bit more... I won't say West versus rest, a a little bit more first world. Um, So a lot of intellectual property development, things like that, occurs in North America, Europe, and Japan, while hardware production, Mm -hmm. the actual making of video game consoles, occurs in low-cost factories, the same types of places we've had issues around iPad development and all of that. But intellectual property is actually even being increasingly outsourced particularly to Southeast Asia. There's a number of companies in Malaysia, there's a number of companies in Thailand um, and India who originally just produced extra art assets and now are actually starting to get some more original intellectual property opportunities. So we're seeing even the software production start to spread out of its traditional home in what we consider more developed countries. Mm. So recently there's been a big console release in the Nintendo Switch. And whenever a major developer or major company drops a console, it does seem to like kind of shake the industry a little bit. So can you get into kind of how the Nintendo Switch has performed for Nintendo, especially in comparison to the Wii U, and kind of how, even though we're in its early days, it seemed to change? So the Switch, in comparison to the Wii U, has been very successful. That being said, Nintendo kind of dropped the ball on the Wii U. It didn't have a good catalog of games when it came out. For instance, the Wii U never got a Zelda game, and Zelda is a flagship property for Nintendo. Zelda Breath of the Wild, which came out on the Switch, was supposed to be on the Wii U, but kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back, and then the Wii U kind of tanked. They didn't sell very well. It just didn't draw people in. I mean, it didn't offer that much that was new above the Wii. It had a gamepad, so one of you could look at that screen while the others played on the TV, But it always seemed more like a peripheral rather than its actual own system. The Switch does something completely different than all other consoles. You can play it as a living room console, but you can also pick up part of it, take it with you, and it becomes a handheld gaming machine. Um, And I haven't messed around with it too much, but you can bring it somewhere and play a party game on it. You can engage other people around you physically in the act of playing a Switch in a way that's not necessarily true for other consoles. So the Switch 
like the Nintendo Wii when it came out, took a different approach to gameplay, trying to get it to be social, trying to get people involved, not worrying about getting necessarily the best technology or the best graphics again, but doing something engaging in terms of innovative gameplay. And the Wii U didn't really do that. It didn't add much above where the Wii had already been. Plus, they didn't have the catalog of games ready to go. So the Wii U didn't draw people in in the same way the Switch did. I'm looking forward to it. I think I need to bring a Switch into my classroom and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. But it definitely does more unique things than the Wii U. How is success defined in video games? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I actually just had this conversation with my students because we watched the documentary Indie Game, Indie Game the movie, and they were pointing out the fact that at the start of the independent development process, people were like, I just want to make the type of game that I would love as a kid. I want to make a game I'm proud of. And at the end, they're <laughs> sitting there watching their sales counters being like, I need to sell this much of it. Because their mom's taken out a second mortgage on her house and they've, they've gone into mm-hmm. debt making this game. So mm-hmm. money starts to matter a lot mm-hmm. more when you have that insecurity. It really depends on who you're talking to. There are a number of independent producers who, if they create a game they're proud of, that's success. If you're talking to a AAA developer, if it doesn't bring in hundreds of millions in sales, enough to more than recoup its $60 million budget, it's a failure. Um, And so it depends on segment, and it also depends on the rationale behind why it was being made. So if it's what we'd consider more traditional in the industry, a console game, a PC game, a core game, it has to bring in a lot. An independent game that sells 2,000 copies but sells them to the audience the producer was trying to reach might be considered a success. And now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda Cody, you stuck around. What are you watching this week? I don't have cable. I'm one of those pesky cord cutters. Um, (laughs) But on Netflix, I just started watching a show called Zumbo's Just Desserts. I watch far too many cooking shows. This is a baking competition out of Australia where home bakers compete to make the best desserts. And I find it phenomenally interesting because it's marketed as a Netflix original. But I was looking at it, and I was like, these seem like commercial break cuts. And so I looked it up, and it was originally produced for Australian broadcast. And then when Netflix picked it up, they just marketed it as Netflix original. Yes, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I think, Although I think the question we probably should have asked Amanda is, what are you playing? In my research about gender in video games, one of the game series that comes up all the time as more inclusive and more kind of diverse in storyline and in who it welcomes in as a player is Mass Effect, the Mass Effect trilogy. And I have actually never played it. But the whole trilogy was recently on sale for $20, so I have started playing it. Everybody in my squad keeps dying, and it's very upsetting. (laughs) But it seems like an interesting game. It's one where, as you choose different narrative options the things available to you later in the game change. So your storyline is different based on what you've picked, and I really like that aspect of it. Amanda Lotz, what are you watching? I just finished Netflix's Godless, which is actually completely an original. Uh, so their take on the Wild West, which was both entertaining and had its limitations, as, as basically everything does. 
How about you, Alex? What are you watching? A TV show that made me very happy last year and is continuing to make me happy this year just returned for its second season, and that's Netflix's One Day at a Time. The kind of remake of the 70s comedy with Justina Machado and Rita Moreno. It's fantastic. It's sweet. It's emotional. It's heartfelt. It is exactly the show I've kind of been turning to over the past, like, few months, and especially recently. Just things that make me happy, make me laugh. I mean, Rita Moreno can get a laugh out of just a look. Just, like, a stare, or a blink, or just something so well-timed. I mean, it's fantastic. And I'm so glad it's back. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. For more about Media Business Matters, go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes in your feed as soon as they're available, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you listen to us on those platforms, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. Amanda Cody, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, So I'm just there at ACCody. Um, It's A-C-C-O-T-E. Amanda Lotz? At Dr. TV Lotz. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Itner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Amanda Cody, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon with a new episode.